Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. We continue in our study of the book of Revelation. You may recall a few weeks ago we looked at Revelation 6 and the seals being opened. Six of the seven seals were opened and they became successively more dangerous and more harmful. And the at the conclusion of the opening of the sixth seal, there were those who were calling upon the mountains to fall upon their heads. And so now we are in Revelation chapter 7, which is a bit of an interlude, as we'll see in just a few minutes. But for now, let's hear from God's Word. Revelation chapter 7. The Word of the Lord is sufficient. It is authoritative. And it is inerrant. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, and with the seal of the living God, he would, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb And all the angels were standing around the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. 
And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray that He would add His blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, we ask this evening that You would teach us from Your Word, that it might take deep root within us, that we might be changed by it, and that we might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt unprotected? Have you ever felt exposed? You know what I mean by that. Someone uh, feels that they are open to attack, that there's no one on their side to protect them. We think of it in terms of our sports analogies, in the terms of a quarterback who cannot see a large onrushing defensive end coming from his blind side. But we think of it also as we think of wars and rumors of wars, as we think about soldiers who could come under attack from shelling or from mortars at any time and they don't have any way to protect themselves. I think oftentimes, as we not only look out in the world, but sometimes as we read passages like Revelation 6, passages of judgment, of justice, passages of great terror and harm, we can feel a bit unprotected in the midst of them. We wonder, if all of these bad things are going to come, how can we be safe? How do we know that we won't come under threats of famine or war or disease or pestilence? This is made all the worse because we see things happen to those that we love and know that we... and whom we know love the Lord Jesus Christ. A a tsunami comes into Japan and it doesn't break by house. It doesn't only sweep away those that hate the Lord Jesus. It simply comes upon a land. And then we hear news of missionaries and of churches reporting of the difficulties and challenges that they have. Well, God knows we have these concerns. And so in the midst of the book of Revelation, one of the things that actually makes Revelation so hard to interpret and understand is the way that God breaks into the narrative, as it were, and He reminds us that He is our protector, that He is our guardian, our guide, and our stay. And so as we look now at Revelation chapter 7, we will see that God is protecting His people in the midst of the storm. He does not promise them that they will never feel the effects of the storm. But He promises them His continual presence. He promises them never to leave them nor forsake them. And so what I'd like us to see briefly this evening here from Revelation 7 are three things about this multitude, this multitude that is redeemed by the Lamb. First, we will see a multitude protected. A multitude protected by God. Then we will see that this multitude is not only protected by God, but that it is possessed by God. 
It is a multitude possessed by the Lord God Himself. And then finally, we will see a multitude that is restored by the work of God. So a redeemed multitude that is protected, that is possessed, and that is restored. Let's begin then by looking here at the beginning of chapter 7 to see the protection that God brings upon this multitude. Verse 1 begins, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, this is going to be one of uh, the first instances to help us in interpreting the book of Revelation. You may recall way back when we looked initially at an introduction to this book, that I said that this book should be looked at in terms of parallel scenes, cyclical scenes that occur over and over again in different ways to describe the way the Lord is at work and to put it in front of our minds. It is not the book of Acts. It is not first or second Kings. It is not a straight narrative. And some who read it that way become confused. They'll look at the beginning of verse 1 and see after this, and they assume that everything that is in chapter 7 has to happen chronologically after chapter 6. But that's not the way that apocalyptic literature works. This is not a chronology or a history. This is a series of visions of technicolor, think movie, think comic book. Ways in which God communicates to us and grabs our imaginations. Now we see this because if you look at verse 3, it said that the angels are not to harm the earth or the sea or the trees until the servants have been sealed. Now if we look back up here at chapter 6 verse 12, that doesn't work chronologically. Because in verse 12 we see that there is an earthquake and the sun becomes black, and the sky vanishes, and the fig tree sheds its leaves. And there are all sorts of apocalyptic things happening on the earth. And if what's supposed to happen is the earth is supposed to be calm until the the servants are sealed, then John has his chronology messed up. So I'm going through this to explain to you because this is really an interlude in chapter 6. These events are occurring at the same time, and that's important for us today. And so as we see the four angels holding back the four winds, I want you to consciously think of a parallel. Oftentimes in Revelation, the same thing will be described in different ways. Satan will be described as a deceiver, as a dragon, as the one who was cast into the pit of hell. Here... The four winds are, I think, the equivalent of the four horsemen that we saw earlier in chapter 6. They're being held back from going out on the earth and reaping destruction until after the servants of God are sealed. You see, John is describing for us an interlude in this destruction right before the destruction takes place. And there's a reason for this. Many of you... Notice, even though we don't put it in our bulletin now, that between the end of the sermon and the hymn, we have something, don't we? It's called an interlude. It's the time that Gladys plays to allow the ensemble to sit down. It is a break 
in the action. It is an opportunity to prepare ourselves for what is to come. That's what an interlude does. It's an interlude or an intermission in a play. It's a break in the action. And so here in chapter 7, we have an interlude that is designed to reassure the church that the woes that are about to come upon the earth cannot separate them from the love of God in Christ. It's a very important interlude. Because if we get wrapped up in all of the devastation of chapter 6, we can begin then to doubt God's love for us, God's care for us, God's protection of us. There is an order of protection that comes out from God. You see, in chapter 6, we saw these four horsemen go out and it looked like the world was out of control. But here we see that God is the one who is in control of the judgments. He tells his angels to hold back or to let go. No matter how hard the world is, God is in control. And it doesn't do us any good at all to work around that. A friend sent me an email last week with remarks from a service held about the tragedy in Japan. And there was a Buddhist and a liberal Presbyterian minister and a Roman Catholic laywoman and a Muslim. The only one that dared to say that God understood what was going on and was in control was the Muslim. Now, his remarks were not correct, don't get me wrong. But he was the only one who was willing to say that God is God. The others were saying, well, we're sure that God is saddened by this just like we are. He didn't expect this. Really? God's not in control of the world? Well, God didn't intend for this to happen. Really, the sea got out of his control. Is that a kind of God that you want to serve? A God who doesn't know what's going on? A God who is not powerful enough to protect? You see, the cure is worse than the disease. I would rather have a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and who knows more about the earth and every single one of those people than I do and to trust him than to think somehow my wisdom is greater than God's. You see, that's a temptation for us when tragedy strikes. And so here we see that God is in control of all that is going on in chapter 6. We also see something else as well. We see that in the midst of all of the struggle on the earth, heaven is a very safe place. Do you see this here? Look with me at verse 9. We see there is a great multitude... And they are crying out with a loud voice in verse 10. And then in verse 11, all the angels stand around the throne. And they stand around the elders. And they worship the Lord. You see, all of the tragedy on the earth does not interrupt the worship of heaven. Chapter 6 ended with an interesting question. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And the first and obvious answer is those who are protected by the Lord. Not only do they stand, they are completely unaffected. Look at verse 1. Four angels are standing at the corners of the earth. 
I put it to you that that's an intentional juxtaposition. Who can stand? The angels can stand. Who can stand? Those who worship the Lord can stand the day of wrath. Because they are protected by God. God has a special love for His people. And that's why He will go about now sealing His people. We'll get to that in just a minute, but I want you to see this is not something new to Revelation. There have been other places in the Scripture where God has placed a seal upon His people and protected them in the midst of all destructive forces. Do you remember the first place we see that vividly? It wasn't a mark upon their bodies, but a mark upon their doors. Right? In Exodus chapter 12, in the midst of the great tenth plague... God put a seal upon the door of His people and death passed them by in the great Passover. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 9 in a very vivid way. Ezekiel is told that there are those who will go out in the city and mark those who are faithful to the Lord and they will be spared from destruction. All others will be carried away in the wake of the tsunami of the Babylonians. God is always preserving His people. He never abandons His people. He hasn't done it in the Old Testament. He did not do it in the days of the New Testament and He will not do it now. No matter what comes to America, God is always with His people. God protects His people because God possesses His people. Now, this may at first glance to us Americans seem to be a bit of an odd phrase that we delight in being owned by God. Does that strike you as a bit odd even when speaking about God? Especially, I think, for many of us, we want to be our own man. We don't want to be in debt to anyone. We're rugged individualists. We have freedoms and the Bill of Rights to prove it. It doesn't strike us so well to be owned by someone else, to be possessed by them, to be at their call. But in terms of our lives and in terms of the Scriptures, the greatest thing that we can know is to be owned by God, to be His personal possession. And that's what's happening here in the sealing of the people of the tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, I'm certainly not going to answer every one of your questions that you might have about this. It's a very difficult passage. And there is much that takes us off on a side track. So I want to stay central here to thinking about how this ceiling involves being possessed by God. The first question we would ask ourselves is, who is it that is sealed? And then the second question we would ask ourselves is, what is this seal? Now, Who is it that is sealed? Well, the answer that would seem to be obvious is 144,000 people. You know, 12,000 from each of these tribes. It must be Israel. Because, you know, it talks about sons of Israel and tribes, and there are 12 of them, and there are 12,000 each. And this is, of course, famously the way the Jehovah's Witnesses take this. They say that outside of this 144,000, which, of course, is equivalent with them, No one else can be really saved. You can sort of get side blessings. You can be in the outer court of heaven, so to speak. But you're not really getting the blessing of being saved unless you're one of the 144,000. 
That's why you should commit immediately to be a Jehovah's Witness. Can't you see it here? Look at the numbers. But there's a little bit of a problem here with interpreting this this way. We've seen before that Revelation is a a book of imagery. It is not a book of precision. And these numbers are intentionally round, large, and vague. Twelve is the number of the tribes of Israel and the apostles. And 1,000 is a number of completeness. That's where we get 12,000 from. And then, of course, 12,000 times 12 gets us 144,000. What's actually being described here is not some sort of ticker tape parade or event where the person with the 144,001 ticket gets shown the door. It's described as a great multitude. Because as we look down through these tribes, we'll start to see that there are problems. We look here and we say, where's Dan? Isn't he a tribe of Israel? And there's Joseph, but if there's Joseph, why is there Joseph and Manasseh? Why is his son here and he's here? Why is Joseph's other son not here? Why is Ephraim not listed? And so we see here that this is not meant to be a sort of strict, chronological, numerical description of ethnic Israel. Well, then your question might be, well, then why include it at all? Why make the mistakes? I'm going to put to you what I think is the answer to this. But like much with Revelation, I put it forth with fear and trembling. It seems to me that what is happening here is we're looking at a description of the people of God in verse 9, described in a more particular way, In verses 5 through 8. So the vast multitude in verse 9 is the people who are sealed in verses 5 through 8. And so there are things done for an obvious reason. For example, Judah is moved to the top of the list. Because it was of the tribe of Judah that the Lord Jesus Christ came. And then we see Reuben. But then we see some interesting things. We see Gad and Asher, Naphtali... And Manasseh. We start to see, moving up in the list, children of the concubines. Not of Rachel, not of Leah, but of the two concubines. And I think what we're seeing here is the inclusion of those who were outcasts, of those who were added on, of those who were the children of the slave, brought into the people of God. And there's only one name that's missing, and it's interesting. It's Dan. And Dan was known in the Old Testament and in intertestamental literature as the tribe of idolatry. It was Dan that encouraged Israel to go into idolatry. It was Dan that set up idols. And I think what we're seeing here is a picture again of how those who are in the covenant, but who are unfaithful to the covenant, who are idolaters, are cast out of the people of God. In short, this list is a bit of a summary of a picture of the gospel. How anyone by faith in Christ can be grafted in. And how it is not sufficient to merely be born into a covenantal family. When we look at this list this way, it becomes a little bit more practical for us. 
we stop worrying about is anybody who's ethnically descended from from Dan going to be converted? And we start asking ourselves, if we are covenant children, are we owning the faith that our parents have? Do we believe in the things that our parents and grandparents do? Are we forging ahead in the covenant? Or are we merely bystanders? It also reminds us that no matter who we are, where we come from, what our lineage is, that we are welcome in the people of God by faith alone. We could be the children of slaves. We could be unwanted, as it were, in the world's eyes. And we are welcome at the table of our Lord because of faith in Christ. This is a kind of imagery that is like the imagery we saw with the lion and the lamb. Do you remember that? We looked and there was the question asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer was that it is the lion of Judah. And we expected this powerful, imperial lion to come forward. And John tells us that when he saw the lion, it was a lamb as it were slain. And we said that the power of Jesus Christ is found in His work on the cross. Well, it's the same way with us, beloved. You see, He is the Lion. And we, we are an army. 144,000 strong, crack troops lined up here, just as the people of Israel were lined up in numbers. Have you ever seen a military parade? It's something to see, isn't it? Everyone marching in step. Everyone knowing where to go. You think there's nothing they can't do. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I know sometimes we look around and it looks like we can't even put a potluck together right. But the church of Jesus Christ in God's eyes is a crack military machine. It is a machine that pushes back the forces of evil, that storms the gates of hell, that shows love and affection for one another. And so this vast multitude that is around the throne in verse 9 and verse 10 is really also an army. It is a people that God has possessed that He is molding into His own. And He places His seal upon us. Now what is this seal? This seal is first and foremost a reassurance that we belong to God. You remember we talked about this last time in Revelation 6, that the seal is a way of taking wax and imprinting something upon it to show that it belongs to the king. Well, we have the seal of the king on our foreheads that we might be seen throughout the world as possessed by God. We might have before us the reminder that we are gods. This seal is also a promise of God's presence. You see, not only does He have a claim on us, we have a claim on Him. Does that sound odd? As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a claim on God. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if you have cast yourself upon Him, if you have no hope except for Him, then God must save you. He has no choice. He has promised it. 
And He cannot break His promise. You have a claim upon God, not because of who you are, but because of what He has promised. What greater security could you have? You are God's. And by being His, you have a claim upon Him. Perhaps you've had this conversation with your children. Your children have asked, could we please not do school this year? Couldn't you please just let me go and do whatever I want? And you say to them, well, if I do that, son, if I do that, daughter, the police will come and take me away. Because you are mine. I can't give you up. The law says that you are mine. Even stronger is that relationship with the Lord. It is not just law that binds us to Him. It is His promise of grace. He will never leave us nor abandon us. And as a result, He has given us the Holy Spirit. Perhaps some of you have wondered why when our Lord Jesus left, He said, it is to your advantage that I go. Because if I don't go, you won't have the Spirit. You see, it's because the Spirit is the seal of God's work upon us. And the Spirit is, recent house hunters, it is the down payment of your eternal salvation. When the Holy Spirit comes to us, it is God's down payment that He will pay the measure in full. That He will redeem us to the uttermost. That is the seal that He puts upon us. Why does God do this? Why does He protect us? Why does He possess us and own us? He does this because it is only through this that we can be Restored. It is only through this that the multitude can be restored. Restored first and foremost, here we see, to worship. Restored to worship the Creator as we ought to have. And restored from pain and death. Do you remember the martyrs who cried out in chapter 6? Well, here we see them before the throne of God. Redeemed with white robes washed white by the blood of the Lamb. The people of God comes out through this great tribulation, restored by the power of God. Now, what is this great tribulation? Now again, according perhaps to some of our more fanciful novelists, this is some kind of technological warfare slash holocaust that starts out of Romania. I think it's something much simpler. It's something much more close to home. The great tribulation is what the people of God face as they are the church militant here on the earth. The history of the church is filled with tribulation, isn't it? We read that this morning in Hebrews 11. The great heroes of the faith were persecuted. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were killed for the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is the reality of the world today that to profess the Lord Jesus Christ puts you in danger. Maybe not so much here in Katy, but in many, many places in the world. And increasingly in places where it used to be safe. You see, the church can only get through this tribulation by the power of God, restoring us to Him, restoring us from death, restoring us from sin, and restoring us, finally, 
to a relationship with Him. Do you see this here in verses 13 and following? John speaks to one of the elders and he says, or excuse me, one of the elders comes up to him and says, Who are these that have their clothes washed? Now, those of you that are teachers here know that this is not a question that's expecting an answer. This is what you call a teacher's question to teach. The elder knows that John's going to say, Only you know, sir, tell me. And then he proceeds to describe this people that has been restored. They are, verse 15, before the throne of God, and they serve Him night and day in His temple. They, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. This is covenantal language. We are restored to serve God. We are restored to be in His presence. And we are partakers of all that He gives to us. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The living water speaks of the eternal life that is ours by being restored to the Lord. And having every tear wiped away is not merely a hallmark moment. It is a vivid description for us that we can easily understand that in heaven there is eternal life and eternal bliss. Heaven is not boring. Heaven is the greatest place in the universe because we are restored to fellowship with the Lord by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is an interlude in the midst of a lot of action. But I would invite you now and in the future to pay attention to interludes. Don't just see them as time fillers. Know that they're there to help prepare us for things to come. And here this chapter is to prepare us that we would know that God is with us, that He will never forsake us, that He protects us, that He possesses us, and that He is restoring us to Himself as only He can do in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.